You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. Your differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. Here's your host, Smarnita Shetty. The female labor force participation rate or FLPR measures the percentage of women actively engaged in the workforce. For years now, policymakers have been digging into these numbers, the ups and downs, to figure out what's going on and what's driving these changes. Is it the economy, is it society, or is it just certain policies? And while there's much talk about creating employment opportunities for women and feminization of workforces, what often gets overlooked in these conversations is that gender norms and stereotypes play a key role when it comes to deciding who works and who doesn't. Joining me today on the episode of On the Contrary by IDR are Gayatri Vasudevan and Manak Matyani. With Manak and Gayatri, we're going to be talking about women in India's workforce, where they're working, what kind of opportunities they have access to, the ones they don't, the societal norms that hold them back, and basically what needs to change when we address these issues. Gayatri has worked extensively on issues of labor, gender, and employability. In 2006, she co-founded LaborNet, a social enterprise that enables livelihoods in the informal sector. She's also the co-founder of Sambhav Foundation, that helps empower women, youth, and differently-abled individuals through livelihood opportunities. Manak is a feminist and queer activist who has led programs, campaigns, and organizations that work on gender-based violence prevention and specifically engage men and boys on issues of gender, sexuality, and violence. Hi, Gayatri. Hi, Manak. Welcome to On the Contrary by IDR. I'm looking forward to getting your perspective on this important topic of women in the workforce and the role that gender norms and masculinities play. Gayatri, if you could start with you, could you explain to our listeners what the labor market looks like for young women in India today? Thanks, Marinita. I'm going to restrict my conversation to young women between the ages of 18 to 30, but I will very briefly refer to the 30 to 40 years age group too. Now, when we look at young women, uh, India is a highly localized uh, labor market. So there's rural, peri-urban, urban uh, labor market, if you look at it from that perspective. The one good thing which has happened is education levels have been high in India. Women are finishing 10th, 12th, and even graduation at times. However, when they're coming to the labor market, there's a huge drop which is happening. And this is because if you look at where there is concentration of work, one is in all the industrial estates and the logistics boom has caused warehouses to come in. So women are coming in into wherever there are larger number of people, women come into labor market much more. So South and West are feminizing a lot more wherever they have large numbers. So shop floors in manufacturing are feminizing, warehouses are feminizing. But when that is happening, it also means they have a very short window of working life. That means when they're 18 to 23, they have a working life and then they're out of the labor market by the time they're 23, 25, which is why I said age becomes very important for women. What happens to a girl who has been working for a few years, having independence, oftentimes away from home because she may be migrant and then there's nothing. So, you know, what will she go back and do is it's almost like she's come for a holiday and she has to go back and live her life where she has to again go back to the traditional gender norms. There's no growth path for them. It's very, very clear. And if it is, it is so few that it's almost negligent. 
So what happens after 23? I think as a nation, we haven't really thought about it. We've said we want young women. So our entire focus is on getting the young woman for the first six months or nine months of her working life there. And if she's a good, she extends it by three, four years. So fundamentally, from the family perspective, she's gone there to earn money for her wedding. From the company's perspective, I don't think there is a lot of thought as to what do you want to do after they finish that golden period of 23 to 25, you know, what happens to them? Because it's the first job that we're all really worried about. So many of them actually go back and become what I would call uh, subsistence entrepreneurs, you know. They try their best because they don't want to leave the economic freedom that they have got, but they become workers for someone else because they don't own the land, they don't own the Kirana shop. Ownership is not with them, but they probably manage it and they uh, deliver on it. And that, I think, is also very problematic because we haven't thought about how will that actually grow as a market. You just touched upon the opportunities in the local ecosystem, which is largely only accessible to men. Can you shed a little bit of light on the kind of options available to men versus women in the workforce? And then Manak, we can have you speak to that as well. Let me start with one thing, right? Today, if we look at it, electricity, water are two things we're saying is going to reach every household and every uh, economic institution in every village. That means somebody has to maintain water and uh, electricity. Plumbing systems, pipe systems, solar, normal electricity, renewable, in whatever form. Now, these are completely male-dominated. I feel these are completely roles women can perform because a lot of it is maintenance. It's not uh, all about installation. And if you look at it, where is India failing? It is actually in the maintenance. So painting, plumbing, electricity, if we can create crews, which are women crews there because they are there. They have not migrated out. If we can create job opportunities and they're not going to be job, right? They are your gig opportunities. So platforms are needed. Women's workforce participation, we are actually not focusing on what we need to do, but we're saying what is easy to do. And when we feminize, what is convenient? There's nothing wrong in it, but I feel we can't be this lazy. Thanks, Gayatri. Manak, if I can come to you, what have you been seeing in the way both young women and men access the workforce? Sure. Thank you. So a lot of my engagement with young people is through programs and is through direct conversation engagement, you know, that kind of mode. And I think what Gayatri is saying is also absolutely true in that what are the kinds of jobs that are much more available to men? And the reason for that seems to be that larger even private systems like an urban company or any other companies which are creating these kinds of crews will think of women as a much bigger liability because suddenly instead of thinking that uh, you know a man coming into your house is a threat for somebody who's in the house it is reversed now you have to provide additional systems for safety and a lot of times companies will not want to invest in ensuring or even having to think about how to ensure the safety of people who are in my system I think especially for contract workers, things like sexual harassment policies or just safety guidelines don't exist. And that is always a big deterrent because the managers, the people up the chain in these gig systems of work don't want to think about the safety of other, you know, they're not employees. They are just people who are there on a very, very short term contract and uh, typically a target based model. And there, like you don't even want to bother with thinking of what that person needs. So I think that 
entry into a gig-based system, it is at your own risk constantly. And that creates a lot of inequality in terms of just the ability to access and be in that kind of system. Whether you can drive late at night, whether you can go into random houses and how that is going to be seen in your own household and your own community. When you walk into a random person's house every day to provide a certain kind of service. So those are definitely the kinds of inequalities that exist. I think uh, the additional thing, of course, is that uh, since men and boys, education is typically prioritized in the household. Then uh, boys do have this additional expectation after completing education to use that education to find some kind of a white collar job, which are, uh, you know, more and more scarce. And that is the other situation where you think that to go into then the gig economy seems like a little bit of a step down. So there is that additional thought around, you know, your own macho masculine image that I have done something and I'm having to do this kind of work. And that definitely plays on in the minds of men. I also think entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial opportunity is something important to think about. A lot of that also depends right now in this culture of, you know, what your caste community background might be. Because that much less safety system is there available to you in terms of any kind of, you know, ability to take a loan, ability to actually be considered, etc. And I think that also definitely plays a role in how even, you know, amongst men, how different men might be able to access or enter the system differently and definitely puts women at a much lower, you know, they would not be considered for being given loans for entrepreneurship, they will have to access some kind of specialized scheme, etc. So this is the range of dynamics that people and definitely women deal with at the workplace if they manage to get there. Manak, you've touched on some crucial points, particularly the safety of young women. And Gaiti, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. Painters and plumbers have to enter people's homes, right? And for women to take up these jobs, it raises safety concerns. Families might have a problem, quote-unquote, allowing women to work in these roles. They may instead be more comfortable searching jobs, like in kirana shops and restaurants which can be viewed as safer due to their more public nature. Basically, what I'm saying is that social and gender norms on what women should and shouldn't do play a key role in the kind of jobs women even have access to. And understanding these different nuances then is crucial in how we approach these labor force participation numbers, right? So I think Smanita and Manak, you hit upon it, right? While I said it's important, let me talk to you about my failure, which is exactly where you hit. We didn't even try it at women in homes. We tried it with auto service technicians. We said, let's train women to be auto service technicians because there is a boom, whether it's EV or two-wheeler, vehicles or four-wheeler. We thought that's a great opportunity for women to be in a different occupation. And that's where we hit a roadblock. When there are larger number of men in a workspace as compared to women, families are worried, women are worried, workspace is not prepared. So what Manak said on safety is bang on. So where I was coming with the electrician, plumber, painter model was actually not even in urban areas. I was talking about it in rural areas. In rural areas, you don't have the personnel. It's a missing middle. The men have gone out. It's economically viable. India has created a large self-help group, Kader. No other country has it as much as India has. The microfinance industry has actually stood on the back of the self-help group movement, which has been created over the last 40 years. And today it's a booming impact investment sector. And I was talking of this, which we need to innovate and really take forward. 
But as I'm staying with this, I want to go back to one of the things that Manak spoke about is access to capital. For women, access to capital seems to be linked to joint liability groups. You know, everybody says, you know what, come as a group, you will each indemnify the other and therefore we will lend. Why is it so only for women? So it seems to be almost like we've said women of themselves cannot actually guarantee it. They need somebody. They need a either a collateral which is coming from a husband or a father or a brother. And I think that's a huge, huge mindset deterrent which is there. So I think if I was to address your point straight on, Smarinita, it is a problem, right? It is a safety problem. There's no doubt about it. But if it is done in large numbers, because you have the self-help groups, that means you actually have a way of ensuring equipment and tools and working capital is taken care of because you've created that structure. So everything which is services, you know, if you look at urban slums, it's unclean. Primary healthcare centers are not well-maintained. I'm going from there. That is create a cadre which nobody is creating, but you need capital to be parked there. right? So have innovative ways in which we're going to deal with capital. Do outcome funding, but do it intelligently. You know, this whole thing about leveraging SHGs and focusing on maintenance as employment opportunities sounds really great. It seems to offer so many possibilities and solutions. Manak, are there other solutions that are more equitable for women in the workforce? So I'm not seeing other very big solutions come up which suddenly equalize the workspace. There are interesting pockets of research and work that are being done. So recently, I think Zoom commissioned a research on hybrid workforces and women's participation in the workforce. And what was interesting about that was that it said that the research actually revealed how older women above the age of 35 or 40 would pick working in a hybrid or a home-based kind of remote work model more than younger women would. And the reasons behind this ranged from uh, to various, but I think the most interesting ones to me and the really clear bang on ones were around how, what kind of freedom is available to women at home to be able to work in peace if they are in a hybrid workplace situation. So this is like, you know, typically call center or those kinds of jobs where you could work on a computer access to that kind of technology because workplaces don't give always technology in your home for you to be able to access a hybrid situation that you're expected to have on your own, especially for, you know, starting level kind of jobs. The other interesting thing over there was that for a lot of younger women, the idea of work was tied into the freedom to go out of their houses and actually be elsewhere to be able to get out and make their own kind of, you know, life. And with that missing, that was a big component of being able to finally be part of a workforce where you're supposed to go out of the house, it takes you out. And I think that was fairly important to younger women uh, who were perhaps not married or had newly married. So there are pockets of uh, sort of information like that, which reveal interesting data about patterns of what kind of workforces women might choose, what kind of work situations might be preferable to women in different ages and different kinds of workplaces. But what we were also discussing about uh, SHGs, I've definitely sort of experienced and worked with small organizations in, uh, you know, not small, but organizations working in rural areas. The SHG model, which is enabling exactly like as you were saying, in a collective form for women and men, but also women, because there are women's SHGs and collectivization interventions more than men's. In user groups, being able to move from being labor in the, uh, you know, employment guarantee schemes to actually becoming contractors because they could take a loan from the SHG. 
And I think it's very clear that that kind of shift is very easily possible. It is women who can pick up a loan from their own SSG and then learn how to be contractors, do that job, then hold government contractors accountable for the quality of the work that they're doing in their own village. So all of this is easy to do, except that that basic access to capital is not available. And so I think this is largely in the social entrepreneurship space where there are loans available, microfinance loans to farmers, women farmers, but it's always in that kind of niche space. I do wonder what it would take for a mainstream loan or lending system to actually start considering women as their big clients and customers and to create systems for that I think that is the kind of change that is needed in terms of just the mindset of people who are providing that kind of capital. Absolutely. You know, what I feel very strongly is value chains we have to tap into. So it's government contracts, but government contracts have to buy at the risk of sounding like an advertising person. They have to buy Dulux paint. They have to buy AI Shin paints. They have to buy Ashirvat paints. They have to buy Syntax tags. So the value chain is actually male-dominated. If now, for example, we did a small pilot with Axonoble to create women paint distributors. First, we trained them as painters and then created women paint distributors. Now, that means the person has a Kirana shop is not owned by her. That was a big discovery, right? Everybody knows this. But for the system to recognize it as a big discovery, took us to create 100 paint distributors doesn't sound logically right to me. Women as Manrega workers is well known. But women as contractors is not well known. And it's the same job. They can be unskilled here, uh, but suddenly they'll become skilled there. How does that happen? It doesn't make sense, right? So I think those are the plays where we need to go hard with value chain. Say that the pipe comes from Astral, pipe comes from Ashridwad pipes. But I'm saying go company and say company, why are we only looking at your shop flows? Why are you looking at only, you know, chat executives and telecallers to be women? That's a very small workforce. My larger workforce is here. Open it up for the larger workforce, right? So what's stopping companies and businesses from doing this? Is it a lack of knowledge or understanding that women can actually be Kirana shop owners or plumbers? Is it safety concerns? Is it mindsets? A lack of imagination? What is it? I think it is about the worry that we're going to spend more. There's a huge uh, worry at the back of the company saying, what is the cost of acquiring a woman? That cost of acquisition, and there have been studies, you know. At Zomato, Anjali said that the cost of acquisition for a rider is 10 times higher than that of a male rider. That cost of acquisition is a big worry. Because you have to change norms across board for it to happen. I think the impact investor group is not innovating enough. Impact investing to me has to be where you need to be innovative. You need to say where market is not growing. If impact investing is going to go to where market is growing, it actually loses sheen in my opinion. Philanthropic money to me should be catalytic money. Allow philanthropic money to fail, right? And today we have 2% CSR, which should allow it. Whereas philanthropic money is now becoming money which you want to do to be safe. I am not for one minute saying don't audit, okay? Do audit. But if everybody refuses to take risks, I don't know how you're going to increase it by double in this, uh, at least in the next two decades, and that's the speed you need. You need to have, you know, a five-year win. You can't have a 45-year win. You know, you need a five-year win. You need a one-decade win. Manak? The 
space that I work in is actually the mindset, right? And so my approach to it is always on what needs to change and how the companies, the executives, etc. think. And I have worked very less in the private company ecosystem, but what uh, Gayatri just said about the purpose of philanthropic capital. I think the moment you switch a project from being a mindset change or a behavior change project to a economic participation uh, kind of project, there is a demand for that much more solid research, foolproofing, exact calculation behind even making a case for that kind of grant to be given. So this whole ROI, etc. system. If you require a big grant for an economic participation or a livelihoods participation project, the moment the grants get bigger, the safety nets shrink. Like you cannot take risks. You have to, before you start the work, commit what is the kind of you know success that you will show. And I think if we assume and we work with the assumption always that private capital will always follow profit, so there is no logic to say they should take risks unless it is, you know, big market and return oriented risk. At least the philanthropic capital, the CSR capital, which is now increasingly getting into more and more safe, you know, make a building, make a school, make a toilet, whatever, that kind of category. That is the capital that should definitely be available for risk taking to be able to switch the market. Right. A lot of time, my increasing demand or request to philanthropists is that don't do your value based philanthropy work only in the philanthropy system because you also sit on your own business empires and boards and trusts. Right. So that is also where the values need to go back from the philanthropy space. It's not like you will be a cutthroat capitalist in that room and you can be a, you know, hardcore philanthropist and human rights person in this room. Mix those two. And unless we take some of the learning and values from philanthropy work, the ability to, you know, encourage people to take risks, to make capital available to, you know, what might seem not marketable, there is no point in having that philanthropic capital only service, uh, you know, relief or basic needs of people. If it's not going to allow a change in that kind of power structure of the kind that we said, right, between labor to contractor, like being in control of your life instead of being only dependent. So what I'm hearing you both say is that while opportunities in the workforce may exist, they often aren't viable for most women. In addition to the usual constraints around access to capital, safe working conditions, or the gender-based stereotyping that they encounter, women also often get locked into roles that society thinks they should be doing. So in a sense, it's essential to look beyond just FLPR. What we need is for businesses and policymakers to expand their imaginations and to create opportunities for women that can also help chip away at these existing social constraints, who they should work with, where they can work, at what stages of their life should they work, and so on. Because unless it translates to changes on the ground, looking at the data year on year will have little meaning for working women in India. It will just be another statistic to report. Thanks, Gayatri. Thanks, Manak, for this really insightful conversation. On the Contrary by IDR is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarnita Shetty, and me, Shreya Adhikari. Production by Made in India. If you like our show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from so more people can find out about us. You can also email us on write to us at idronline.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening and see you next week.